Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Near the back of a crowded convenience store in Chilliwack, B.C., a bulletin board just beyond an ATM serves as home for some of the more mundane community announcements. An upcoming yard sale, an offer of seasoned firewood, and an experienced babysitter looking for work appear to be the most recent postings to the board. Those listening likely pass by scenes like this almost daily, but this one's different. It's special. On this particular bulletin board, a partially obscured photograph is visible below the community's more recent news flyers. At first glance, it appears to be a young girl's school picture, now tattered and yellowed with age. The child's head is tilted slightly as her large brown eyes stare out from below a mop of brown hair. In fact, when I first saw this picture, it was her eyes that drew me in. Something in them communicated both the delicacy of life and a feeling of perpetual longing. The message in this girl's eyes is best heard at the end of each month when the shopkeeper removes the month's postings from the bulletin board. Well, all the posters except for hers. For the past 35 years, this missing persons poster occupied space on this bulletin board, serving almost as a monument to one of Chilliwack's darkest mysteries. That longing I mentioned in the 10-year-old girl's eyes? Many feel as though she's staring out and hopes someone will be compelled to find her. After I saw the missing persons poster and read a summary of the case, I wanted to learn all I could about her life, her family, and what is known about the night she went missing. In this episode, tonight, I'll tell you what I've learned about the disappearance of 10-year-old Joanne Peterson. In 1983, during the events of this story, Joanne Peterson was a 10-year-old grade 5 student attending Watson Elementary School in Chilliwack, British Columbia, not far from the Washington border. She lived in a modest home in the Vetter Crossing area with her mother Angela, her stepfather John, and her two older sisters. By all accounts, Joanne was a happy little girl who loved to sing and ride her bike. A lot has changed in the last 35 years, but at the time of this story, Chilliwack had a population of just over 40,000 that was primarily centered around Chilliwack's military base, which in the early 80s was a bustling hive of activity. At present day, Chilliwack is more known for its high crime rate, but the version of Chilliwack that Joanne and her friends rode their bikes through was a quiet, safe place. The sort of place where parents were comfortable allowing their kids to walk the neighborhood by themselves and simply hang out. Sadly, I suspect that comfort ended immediately after news of Joanne's disappearance spread. The unimaginable circumstances that lead to Joanne's disappearance occur on a cold, rainy Saturday 
in February of 1983. Joanne's mother and stepfather had plans to spend the evening at a nearby legion, and as such, they left 10-year-old Joanne and her 11-year-old sister in the care of a 14-year-old cousin. As the weather was so poor, the trio decided to spend the late afternoon at a shopping mall within walking distance of their home. After an unremarkable day at the mall, the three girls left in the early evening, just as the sun set, and began walking home despite the poor weather. What happens during this walk, and its eventual outcome, is horrifying. In part, because anyone with a sibling likely has many memories of very similar experiences. I know my brother and I had. Now getting back to the girls... As the three made their way through the wind and rain, something trivial led to a spat between Joanne and her older sister. The exact details of what the argument was about has never been shared publicly, except to say that it was petty. Anyone listening who spends any time with a pair of 10-year-old siblings, you can use your imagination as to what exactly happened, and you probably won't be far off. But regardless of the circumstances that resulted in the sisterly dispute, Joanne ended up on the receiving end of a prank that played a part in Chilliwack's image as a safe community being lost. As Joanne was the youngest of the three girls, it's no surprise she was the slowest. As such, during the arms race of the sisterly spat, Joanne's sister and cousin exploited the advantage of speed and they ran ahead, racing Joanne to their home and locking the door behind them, leaving Joanne alone outside in the wind and the rain. Now before I continue, I want to step away from the story for a moment and paint the scene a bit. As I said prior, Joanne's mom and stepfather weren't at home. They were at a social event at a legion. As such, when the two older girls arrived at the empty home and locked the door, this childish prank was able to continue. I'm not going to justify anything the girls did, but if you put yourself in their shoes and try to remember being an 11-year-old, you may be able to understand how this played out in the way it did. Also, speaking of Joanne's mom, remember that this story is set in the 1983 version of Chilliwack. This was the kind of place where people left their doors open, and the kind of place kids the age of Joanne had a much longer leash than children likely have in the same town today. Now, let's get back to the girls. So, just moments after the two older girls ran up the front steps, slammed the door shut, and flipped the lock, Joanne arrived, likely quite annoyed and quite upset. When Joanne found the house locked, she began banging on the door and trying in vain to get in. But being as cold and as wet as she would have been, she gave up her efforts to get in after only a couple of minutes, deciding instead that she would go to a nearby convenience store and use their phone to call her parents at the Legion. By the time Joanne's sister and cousin let up and opened the front door for her, the front porch was empty. Joanne had already set out alone in the dark, rainy night. After walking roughly two blocks through the darkness, wind, and rain to the Penny Pincher convenience store, Joanne arrived at just about 8 p.m. As 10-year-old Joanne approached the counter, she was soaking wet, cold, and now crying. 
Store clerk Helen Fong described her interaction with Joanne to a local reporter with Global News the next day. She came in, she was soaked, and she was crying, and I asked her what's the matter, and she said, I was locked out. So I said, how, do, how come you don't have any key? She said, I don't have key. Can I borrow your phone? I said, yes. Then I handed her the phone, and she said, gee, I don't know the number. I said, how come you don't know your home's phone number? She said, my mom's downtown Chilliwack in the Legion somewhere. And I said, well, if you don't know the number, well, you go outside and call the operator and ask for the phone, and then she left. Did you see how she left the store? No, we were busy, you know. We keep on, you know, customer coming in, so we didn't pay any attention. So you don't know what happened? No. After the short exchange you just heard Mrs. Fong describe, Joanne exited the store and entered the small booth that surrounds the payphone, located just about 20 feet from the store's front entrance. As Helen Fong had explained, Joanne knew her mom was at the Legion, but didn't know the phone number, so when Joanne picked up the phone, she dialed zero and requested assistance making the call. With a little help from the telephone operator, Joanne was able to connect with the Chilliwack Legion and asked to speak with her mom or her stepdad, John. It was Joanne's stepfather, John, that took the call. When he answered, Joanne explained what had been happening, how the girls locked her out of the house, how she was now standing in a phone booth outside a convenience store, and of course, Joanne asked if John could come pick her up right away and bring her home. Naturally, John told Joanne they would be right there and pass the phone to her mother, Angela, so that she could reassure her daughter. It's at this point where things get really odd and really concerning. When Joanne's mother, Angela, put the phone to her ear, she didn't hear her 10-year-old daughter speaking in between sobs. Instead, she heard a series of odd scratching noises, followed by an irritated man stating he would be contacting the police if someone doesn't pick up the girl within the next half hour. Here is how Joanne's obviously upset mother Angela described that conversation to Global TV a day after her daughter was reported missing. Um, my husband had answered the phone and uh, talked to her and everything seemed all right. She said, well, could you just come pick me up? And um, John said, yes, I will be right there. And he said, do you want to talk to your mom for a minute? And I went to get the, go on the phone. When I went to talk to Joanne on the phone, she, um, she wasn't there. And uh, it was just click, click, click on the phone. And well, did went, a man come on the phone at one yes, point? And, yes, a man came on the phone and said, you better get here within half an hour or I'm phoning the police. And I was there between 15 and 20 minutes. After the man made this demand, he hung up the payphone, leaving a stunned Angela back at the Legion hearing a dial tone call out from the receiver she was holding to her ear. Being as concerned as Joanne's mom Angela must have been, she immediately called the payphone back, but it just rang without an answer. Obviously, Joanne's mom and stepdad left the Legion immediately and rushed to the store, arriving within 15 to 20 minutes of the call. But when they arrived, Joanne was nowhere to be seen. And now, speaking from my present position in time, 35 years later, Joanne hasn't been seen since. (music) 
Sadly, this unsettling span of minutes in and around the payphone outside of the Penny Pincher convenience store were the last known moments in then 10-year-old Joanne Peterson's life. At 8.15 that Saturday night in February of 83, after being locked out of her home during a childhood prank, Joanne seemed to have been plucked out of the telephone booth and spirited away into the dark, cold, rainy night. Due to Joanne's age and the circumstances of the case, the investigation began fast and aggressively. The very next day, search teams covered the immediate area as police investigators identified and interviewed nearly all customers who passed through the busy store that night. Of course, investigators quickly zeroed in on the man who was in the payphone booth with Joanne and who spoke briefly to her mom before hanging up the phone. Several of the customers interviewed did recall seeing a white male in the phone booth with a young girl. Based on the various witness accounts, the man was described as being approximately 20 to 30 years old, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 7 in height, slim to medium build, light to dark hair, clean shaven, and wearing a dark jacket. Also possibly related to this man, witnesses described seeing a man and child driving away in a cream-colored two-door car with a blue roof. And now, after 35 years of looking, police have found no trace of Joanne and are no closer to identifying the irritated man she shared her last known moments with than they were during the interviews with the witnesses who provided his physical description. Unlike many similar cases, this isn't one filled with theories and innuendo. There's rarely any consideration given to theories that don't involve Joanne leaving the Penny Pincher store's parking lot either involuntarily or under false pretenses. Where she's been taken, or why, I think I'd rather not speculate. Now, as I've already said, there hasn't been any confirmed sightings or evidence of Joanne's activities beyond her time in that phone booth. But there has been some strange leads that have appeared as promising as they were disturbing. Understandably, many of the details have been kept private by the investigators, but I will tell you what's been shared publicly. As the media was busy circulating a very creepy police sketch of the man seen in the phone booth with Joanne, the case received a strange twist, which for a while led to suspicions being redirected to Joanne's family. During the early reporting on Joanne's disappearance, the news media, and through them the public at large, learned that Joanne's birth father, Leo Peterson, had been involved in a bitter custody battle with Joanne's mother Angela over the three daughters. Most significantly, Three years prior to Joanne's disappearance, Leo took his three daughters with him to the United States, where he quickly changed his name to avoid detection. Leo spoke to Global News about this event in the days following Joanne's disappearance. Isn't it true, sir, that you took your children three and a half years ago to the United States to live and changed your name so that you wouldn't be detected? That is correct, yes, and that was uh, at that time also because of my concern for the children. They were very unhappy about the situation then. Uh, I attempted to get legal custody at the time, but the time involved and the money involved, I was informed by my lawyer, would, was prohibitive. Despite the odd family issues, Leo was cleared as a suspect after a short period of public scrutiny. In fact, 
a solid alibi put him out of town the night of Johan's disappearance. After investigators confirmed Joanne's biological father's alibi and continued to meet dead ends in their search for the man from the phone booth, a new strange twist would puzzle the detectives working the case and give Joanne's loved ones a renewed sense of desperation. It all surrounds a bizarre phone call made to Joanne's grandmother. The call came in three weeks after Joanne was last seen in that phone booth. In nearby Surrey, British Columbia, the phone began ringing in Joanne's grandmother's house. She stepped away from her chores in the kitchen, picked up the ringing telephone, and said hello. The call started with a man asking her to confirm the number he had dialed. After she repeated her phone number, the man didn't respond. Instead, Joanne's grandmother heard the sounds of shuffling, almost as if the caller was passing the phone to someone else. And then, with no warning or introduction, a young girl began crying into the phone line. Just as soon as Joanne's grandmother asked who was calling, the line disconnected. Unfortunately, this call wasn't able to be traced, leaving the caller and the crying girl unidentified to this day. Adding to the mystery of this call, Joanne's grandmother was said to have used an unlisted phone number at the time and that only close friends and family knew it. Although it can't be confirmed, Joanne's grandmother felt very strongly that it was Joanne crying into the phone, possibly trying to get a message to her. The next and the final update I have to discuss on this case to me seems more compelling than the prior two. However, perhaps as a sign the investigators feel the same way, very little has been released regarding these developments. This update takes place 25 years after the prior two I just mentioned. As Joanne's disappearance met its 25th anniversary and with very little in the way of progress, those searching for Joanne invited the Canadian press to help them both share their story and make an emotional appeal to the public for information on the now cold case. Shortly after Joanne's face, name, and story again spread throughout the local news, something seemed to shake loose, at least for someone. After the various news publications ran their 25-year update, investigators began receiving a series of intermittent letters from an anonymous man. Within these letters, the author claims to have been a witness to the events that occurred outside of the Penny Pincher store that night, which led to Joanne's disappearance. It'd be easy to discount something like this as a prank or some random dirtbag's idea of a good time, but this seems different. It's been said that the most recent letter, which was received in 2011, contains details only a witness would know. The specific content of the letters has yet to be made public, with the exception of a small sampling of the handwriting, so we're left to speculate what may have been included in the letters. What we do know is that the content may have swayed the investigators' thoughts on the man in the phone booth with Joanne. It was long suspected that the man in the phone booth may have been responsible for Joanne's disappearance. However, something within these letters suggests that the unknown man may have been trying to help Joanne and may have been scared off from contacting police back in 83 for fear of being cast as a suspect. 
Again, you can take that with a grain of salt, as the author of the letters hasn't been identified, and who the police suspect to be involved has only been discussed publicly by the press, certainly not by the police. Police have said that they are following up on news tips received in the letters. And they've also said they believe the man from the phone booth is still in the area somewhere and is aware of the media coverage. Seeing as speaking to him is the next step in the investigation, on countless occasions the police have appealed to him to come forward and help bring justice to 10-year-old Joanne Peterson. Now, with those three developments, as relatively minor as they are, we're now in the present day of this case. It's now been 35 years since the cold and rainy night Joanne stepped into a payphone booth and was never seen again. Although I've never met Joanne or any other member of her family, I do think of her whenever I pass by a payphone booth, which, like Joanne and far too many vulnerable members of society, are disappearing from the streets of Canada nearly every day. I want to end this episode with comments for Joanne's family and loved ones. I, and I'm sure likely no one listening to this, could ever imagine what you've been through during the last 35 years. To lose someone you love is horrible. For that loss to be as vague as a missing persons case is torture. And to have to live with the many what-ifs that surround Joanne's disappearance, that's hell. From the bottom of my heart, I wish you happiness and hope that you see progress in Joanne's case, and I hope that the progress leads to closure. If any members of Joanne's family or anyone close to the case would like to talk with me, please get in touch. I'd be more than happy to revisit the story with you on a future episode. And lastly, I want to make a plea to the man in the phone booth, the author of the letters, or anyone else who knows anything about the disappearance of Joanne Peterson. Do the right thing and contact the Chilliwack RCMP at 604-792-4166 or to remain anonymous, call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or report it online from the local library www.bccrimestoppers.com. With that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to thank Aaron Gillard, both for bringing Joanne's story to my attention and for collaborating on this episode's script with me. Aaron, your passion for Joanne's story is infectious. I'm glad to have worked on this with you. I also want to thank the Ottawa-based dark wave duo Paragon Cause for supplying the music for tonight's episode. Their debut album is called Escape. It's awesome and it's available now. If you're interested in hearing more content, please check out the Nighttime Patron Group, where for $1 a month you can support the show and access supporter-exclusive bonus content, such as exclusive videos, extra audio, and prior episodes no longer available on this main feed. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. I'd like to thank the current members of the show and welcome the newest members of the group, Sarah Sheik, I sincerely appreciate you supporting Nighttime and becoming a patron last month. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can lend me a hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Equivalent. 
If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if any of you have any story ideas or some feedback for the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, keep looking around and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.